We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Wojovics. Joining me today is Keith Wiener. Keith is the president of the Gold Standard Institute USA, CEO of Monetary Metals, and also holds a PhD in economics. Thanks for joining me today again, Keith. Thanks for having me again, Tom. So last week, Monetary Metals released the annual gold report for 2023. So I'd like to go through it with you a little bit today, see what you are looking forward to in the year ahead. But maybe we should start by kind of looking back to the calls from the report from 2022, from last year. So firstly, they were seemingly two opposing forces that were at play last year to end the year basically flat for the price of gold. So what were those two opposing forces in the market last year that ended up kind of giving us volatility in the metals yet ending at the same place? So if I recall, what I was talking about last year was the impossibility of predicting because it's a political prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one thing to look at the monetary system and say, you know, there's a certain physics of the way it behaves and you're making a scientific prediction, which is one thing. But when you're trying to figure out what politicians are going to do, and, and let's, let's pull no punches, the people that run every central planning agency are politicians. What the politicians are going to do is, is dependent on the politics of that instant. And sometimes politics makes very interesting bedfellows. You, you know, if you look at the tax cuts that they did in 2017, suddenly it became a conservative position to say, let's not preserve deductibility of state and local taxes. Normally, you would think the tax cutters would be all about that, respecting you've already paid tax on that money, now you're going to pay tax again. But it was, it was, you know, the red team trying to score a point against the blue team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the question a, a year ago was, and sometimes this happens this way, unfortunately, we wrote that report before the Fed ultimately started hiking rates and also before Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So Ukraine was complete wild Last card. year's report. Um, last year's report, that's right, was written basically in, in the last few weeks of January without the benefit of any foreknowledge of those things. So, you know, at that time, it was like, well, the Fed sounded like they were serious about hiking rates, but there's certainly been many times in previous years where they sounded like they were serious and then always found some excuse to push it off or whatever. Like, are they really going to hike rates or not? And if they are, we're going to go down one path, which I said isn't necessarily bullish for gold and maybe downright bearish for silver. And on the other hand, maybe they just just say, well, yeah, you know, we're going to shake your hand. But no, we're just going to, you know, do like we've done many times in the past, in which case I think that would be pretty bullish because then the, the so-called inflation trade is back on. And so they ended up hiking rates and they're pretty serious about it. And the prices of the metals went down and then, you know, gold came back to par. Silver, the price actually advanced on the year, which is a little bit surprising because silver is, when people say, well, silver is an industrial metal as well as a monetary metal, which is true. But even as a monetary metal, there's a difference between the two metals. And that of silver has always been the one that wage earners turn to. Because if you're putting 10% of your weekly wage into precious metals, let's say that's 50 bucks. It's a lot more practical to put that into silver and you get a handful of silver coins. You put $50 into gold, 
you got some little fleck that's you know under a gram and the way these things are sold today that's basically in a in a plastic certicard that people haven't seen these you know in this in this denomination before it's the size of a credit card has a little clear plastic window in there and inside that plastic window there's a space and this little chip of gold is floating in there you can't really touch it you wouldn't want to try to touch it anyway because you'd bend it and you could lose it in the lint in your pocket and exaggerate slightly but you know, so it's it's not convenient. It's expensive to manufacture. You pay huge premiums, which you don't recover at the time you go sell it. And so... Really not as satisfying. Definitely not as satisfying. And, you know, there's, there's a big loss to buy and then sell. So for wage earners, and this is always true, I mean, for thousands of years, but turned to silver, gold was more for the capital-owning class. So gold trades off against capital other capital assets. Silver is more dependent on the plight of the wage earners. And as we know, 2022 was a great year for wage earners, despite, you know, the, the rate hikes, at least, at least so far. Mm-hmm. I think the rate hikes are now starting to hit labor in, in a way that they weren't in most of the year in 2022. And so, but anyways, it's impossible to predict that. Now, here we are, you know, a year on, the Fed obviously did hike rates. I think I'm one of the few economists who said, look, the Fed cannot reverse the tide. They're King Canute, you know, sitting there saying, make the tide go away. And it doesn't really work. So they can force via central planning the overnight interest rate, but not longer term interest rates. And even the overnight, you know, they can cause all sorts of damage in what they do. So I think it's only a matter of not if, but when they reverse. So now that that becomes the game is trying to predict that. And then economically, okay, well, why why am I so confident they're going to reverse? And the answer is, in order for rates to be on a durable rising trend, there has to be more demand at higher rates than there was at lower rates. In other words, somebody has to keep chasing the rate up. The higher the rate goes, they want to borrow more. There's a, there's a race between rates rising and somebody borrowing more. And that's just not, that was the world of 1947 to 1981. And there were reasons why they were chasing rates up and borrowing more. But that's not the world we're in today. And so what happens is, you know, rates go up and then the demand for borrowing and also the means for servicing it anyways, basically gone. And so, you know, look at, I don't know if this is the case in Canada, in the US, the car companies are still offering 0% for 72 months. I saw a Carvana ad, the Carvana CarMax, one of the used car chains offering 0%, I don't think it was 72 months, I think it was 60 months, on a used car. Mm-hmm. We should have a higher interest rate. And so the car companies know that the demand for credit, car credit is it basically falls off a cliff if, if you have to charge anyone year. Well, forget a market rate. You charge one or two percent. And the market rate, you know, if, if you didn't have that subsidy, you know, would be probably eight or nine percent at this point. There should be no demand for cars. And the same thing is true for business credit. You know, so so what the Fed is going to have to deal with is the Obviously, demand for credit goes away, as I've been saying. And with that comes a need to liquidate capital assets to repay credit. You know, if you're a business and you borrowed a lot and, and you leveraged, and now the interest rate goes up, you have to deleverage. So that forces asset prices down further. It becomes a spiral of, you know, closing plants, closing stores, closing restaurants, closing hotels in order to somehow sell it and, and realize something to try to repay the debt and be solvent. 
And so there's a, there's a perverse irony. Even if you ignore the morality of this idea that, well, we have to render people unemployed in order to preserve the purchasing power of the currency, like how did they sell us down that river? But even if you ignore that, the perversity of we're trying to kill demand, but they're killing supply. And so it goes back to Say's law, Jean-Baptiste Say, who said supply, your supply is your demand. Mm-hmm. You come to the market with something you supply, and that to that extent, you can take from the market what you what you want. And so they're trying to kill demand, but they're killing supply. And so this is not a formula for controlling consumer prices anyways. So that's the mess that we're in at the moment. And the, and the only real question is, you know, suppose when the Fed does these things, it's like it sets it sets the city on fire. And the Fed is like in this 100-story ivory tower. When do the flames reach up to the level of the Fed's window where, you know, there's a point at which they look down and say, oh, yeah, I do, I do say it. it appears to be some fire down there. How terrible. What a, what a shame, old chap. You know, and then as the flames are rising at some point, it's, oh, dear, the, the flames are coming in our window. We better do something. And what is that point? And, and that's a, a very political, it's a political calculus, not an economic, you know, Mm -hmm. Do you think this lowering interest rate trend that has existed for the last 40 years is really the cause of how, you know, the economy works at this point versus the example you gave us in the 40s of rising rates being, you know, in effect, good for businesses that were constantly chasing higher rates? Well, I I guess I want to I want to clarify, Mark. No, I I don't think the rising trend was good either. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you rewind back to the 1970s, there was this persistent sense of malaise. You know, President Carter at the time famously put on a sweater and tried to do this fireside chat thing. And he basically said, you know, get used to tightening your belt, get used to it being cold in your house in the winter and just, you know, be happy with less. Mm-hmm. It was definitely not a good time. You know, you had obviously very high unemployment, inflation is skyrocketing. I mean, just it just sucked. So I, I kind of think of a rising interest rate trend. It's like somebody brings a giant wrecking ball and the wrecking ball swings to the north side of the street and it's sort of oscillating around, knocking down walls and buildings and killing people and stuff. And then when the trend reverses and you have a falling interest rate trend, the wrecking ball swings to the south side of the street and now it's messing up the buildings over there. It doesn't repair anything on the north side. Mm-hmm. So that rising interest rate trend was a period of gutting of hollowing out American industry as all the capital intensive heavy industry was basically obliterated. Not all, but you know, most of it. There were some survivors of it. The car companies, although with some subsidies, I believe, Caterpillar, there were a few, but largely got all gutted. And then the falling interest rate trend, you know, destroys by by a different mechanism. But leaving all that aside, the falling trend, at least in the earlier days, is a lot of fun because it unleashes a lot of capital. So it's the process of capital consumption. And that capital comes is converted to consumer products, essentially. And that's a lot of fun. It seems like a time of prosperity. Mm-hmm. That's certainly how people remember the 1980s, for example. Oh, wow, you know, Volcker and Reagan really did good. Well, they, they presided over this change in, in trend. As it continues, you become more and more addicted and essentially, you get less and less economic activity of any kind. It's like the, the velocity of money wants to go to zero. And the only way you get another little bit of juice is by 
applying a little more squeeze and that squeeze is in the form of pushing the interest rates down even further. Mm-hmm. Then you run into what they, I, I love the antiseptic terminology of the statists when they don't, they have to sort of acknowledge an elephant in the room and they don't really want to kind of say what it's like. It's the zero bound. It's, it's a very antiseptic, clinical, you know, almost sort of scientific term. What, what the fuck? Are they t- I'm sorry. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? We've pushed the interest rate down to the point where people are expected to lend their money for free. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of Europe, Switzerland, Japan, you know, you lend the bank $1,000 and you get back $990 at the end of the year. You're actually paying them to take the risk of lending your money. Oh, that's the zero bound. Yes, that's right. So you get all these perversities as the rate continues to fall, especially when it hits their so-called zero bound. But the system is addicted to it. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine you have this patient who, you know, for whatever reason, chooses not to go to sleep. So first he's on caffeine, then he's on Jolt and Red Bull. After that, that's not really effective anymore. So he turns to cocaine, then crack, then methamphetamine. You know, he's going to stronger and stronger and stronger drugs. Well, the withdrawal of the drug is probably going to be fatal. And so it's not it's not really a matter of saying, well, this is the right thing for the Fed to do. The only right thing is how to get back out of this and not have a central planner and, and not have a redeemable currency. But that's not on the table. So how do you kind of minimize the pain and prolong the game as long as you can? Well, you have to re- recognize the trend is downward on interest rates. The Fed can try to push them up. But even notice, even within its own system, the Fed is pushing up the Fed funds rate, the overnight rate. And the 10-year treasury rate has gone up and not nearly as much. So you can use the expression pushing on a string. Mm-hmm. You're not really getting that 10-year to go the way the way you want. And I think that that falling interest rate trend is going to reassert itself with a vengeance. And the Fed is going to be forced, for one reason or another, to reverse, which is probably going to set off another 2009 to 2011 you know, inflation or reflation trade is one of the dynamics that I'm expecting. Now, whether that's this year, I think it's likely very hard to predict the timing of something like this, especially because a lot of the decision-making is political. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, you know, if this were the Starship Enterprise, you know, you'd have Mr. Scott calling up to the bridge, she cannot take no more of this, Captain. <laughs> you know, there's some of that going on too. And as companies have their bond bonds roll over at maturity, they're faced with vastly higher interest rates. None of them are really well equipped for that. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go next is talking about this rate hiking cycle. Has it created more zombie companies and how much of a lag time do you think it takes for these companies to start really feeling the pain and maybe going out of business because of this rising cost of capital? Yeah. So even when before the Fed was hiking rates, something like 20% of all the corporate debt extant was zombie debt. So um, on our Monetary Metals podcast, we have something called the Gold Exchange. October was zombie month, you know, leading up to Halloween. So we had a couple of guests and others talking about the zombie problem from different angles. And the Bank for International Settlements every once in a while updates the statistic as they measure zombies. So they define a zombie as profits are less than interest expense. So the company would be making money if it didn't have any debt, but the debt burden is such that it's actually not able to service its debt. It only exists by virtue of, first of all, incredibly low interest rates and also really forgiving lenders, lenders that are willing to lend to a firm that basically isn't a going concern. Mm-hmm. 
which is perverse in itself. And it shows the imbalance between anemic demand for credit and overwhelming supply of credit that all the you know pension funds, insurance companies, banks, you know, investors have to put their cash to work on something or other. And so this incredible imbalance, even back when rates were zero. And so if 20% of the debt was zombie, you sort of below the waterline at that time, now you've just pushed the interest rate up, you know, four point something percent. You've just raised the waterline. So that means that, yes, a, a much greater number of companies and a greater proportion of the debt is zombie. But to your question, what's the lag? Well, each company has a discrete borrowing calendar. So, you know, if, if the day before the Fed hiked rates, you sold, the, you know, you rolled all your debt on a three-year maturity, let's say in February of 2022, and then, and, and if you had a fixed rate on that bond, you don't have a problem until January 2025. So there can be significant lags, you know, for factors like that, but every company is at a different place in its rollover cycle. You know, when, when the crisis of 2008 happened, everyone said Ford was smarter than GM, right? Because Ford didn't really get dragged into it the way GM did. Now, Ford had rolled over its debts in the spring of 08 when you could still do that. And GM was due to do so in the fall or maybe the winter of 09. I don't know what the timing exactly was. And so when the market closed, then GM was caught. You know, it's like the music stopped and GM didn't have a chair. And Ford happened to be sitting in a chair at that time. Were they smarter? Well, possibly. I mean, I don't take credit away from success, but all the people that are sitting in the chair just happen to be the ones that are standing in front of an open chair when the music stops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the music has definitely stopped for a lot of these guys. And now the question is, when are they forced to get out of their chair to, to go roll over? I'm mixing my analogies here slightly, but they're forced to get up out of their chair and roll every time they have a maturity that's due. And the maturities are relatively short. I mean, they're not 20, 30-year maturities. You know, in a long-falling interest rate cycle, everybody's learned to use shorter maturities as an insulation against a further drop in rates. So, Keith, let's maybe explore the other side, the more pragmatic, the more Main Street-level side of hiking rates. Is the Fed on the right path to lower CPI readings by pulling the levers of jacking rates up and cutting the balance sheet? So the conventional theory is the quantitative theory of money that says if you have a higher quantity of money, then prices go up. And if you have a lower quantity of money, then prices should go down because there's some sort of general price level, which is you have all these different price buckets. You know, here's a car and here's groceries and here's rent and all these things. And the total amount of money is like this liquid that is poured in. And so the less liquid, the lower the price level. I don't think that's really a valid way of looking at things, and I don't think the theory is true. But I do think that interest rates absolutely matter. And I think that at a very pragmatic level, you have to look at it from the perspective of the manager of any particular firm. What happens when your cost of capital goes down versus what happens when your cost of capital goes up? Suppose you're the regional manager for some hamburger chain, and you have 175 units in the Southwest United States region, and you always have a spreadsheet that you're sitting there looking at the next marginal store that you might open. And you know the demographic data because you have that, you know the you know what the competitive landscape looks like and everything else. And your your spreadsheet just the bottom line is red. And so you don't open that store. If they lower the cost of capital, the cost of capital is a significant factor in that spreadsheet. So if the interest rate 
ticks down from 4% to 3%, you plug in the 3% and suddenly that red turns to black and you have a profitable unit that gets over your hurdle rate. And so you open that store. The same thing is happening at the companies that make the grill equipment that they sell to restaurants. The same thing is happening to the company that makes those awful ceramic tiles they put on the floors of those places that look like fake wood planks, but they're actually ceramic. The company that makes the plate glass windows for the storefront. Every every company, if they're considering expanding production, that downtick in interest rates and their spreadsheets all turn you know, green, that it's profitable. Uh, conversely, if, if, the, if the rate of interest goes up, you have the same thing happening in reverse. Suddenly, your marginal storage is already operating, no longer makes any sense. And so I remember reading shortly before writing the Outlook report that Macy's had announced it closed X number of stores. And the same thing is going to be true for all the other guys. So, you know, you have a cost of capital of X. The store is returning certain return on capital of Y. If Y is less than X and you can close the store and repay some debt and get out of that, you do so. And so the, the rising interest rate is, is forcing deleveraging, but it's forcing deleveraging of producers. So you're trying to kill demand to get prices down, but you're killing supply. And yes, every, every Macy's store lays off you know, X number of workers. Those workers are buying less clothing. It's true. But the supply of clothing has been reduced by a greater amount than demand has been. And so, you know, if you look back to the 1970s, that's exactly what it was. It was continual reductions in production, rise, you know, so you had you had smaller quantities supplied, smaller quantity demand at higher prices. And if the Fed, the Fed doesn't think it's trying to go back there. The Fed thinks that the cure to the 1970s was rising rates which is kind of perverse because the entire 1970s was a period of rising rates. The 1960s and 1950s, all three decades were rising rates and rising consumer prices. So they've got, they've got it backwards. So Monetary Metals, we published a cartoon last year sometime that showed the economy on fire and the fire is labeled inflation. And then you have Jay Powell with a gasoline truck spraying gasoline on the fire. And there's a reporter saying, do you think it'll be enough to put out the fire? And it's like, you've got the cause and effect backwards. Mm-hmm. That's not going to put the fire out. Obviously, that's going to you know, make it worse. And so I think if, you know, here's how I have to put it. I don't want anybody to think I'm an advocate of lower rates per se, because I think they're enormously destructive. So there's a lot of destructive, destructiveness to lowering rates or raising them, by the way. But if, if one ignored all the different ways that lower rates and falling rates destroys and focus only on consumer prices, if that was one's only concern, then one should want lower rates rather than higher rates as a way of stimulating more capacity. And everybody from apartment building developers, the lower the cost of capital, the more apartment buildings they're going to build. The higher the cost of capital doesn't work because there is an arbitrage between the return on capital and the cost of capital. You can't borrow at X to earn less than X return on capital. Right. So you either don't do the transaction if, if you're lucky enough not to have been already committed, or if you're already committed, you're looking at how you unload this thing, how you repurpose it, how you do something to get out of the, you know, sell it and get out of the debt. So rising rates, should this be a durable trend, is really going to cause a lot of havoc and just slam the whole economy into reverse. Mm-hmm. Does this in some ways set us up to head towards communism or fascism, Keith? Well, that's 
<laughs> that's a broad philosophical sort of social, you know, put your social thinking hat on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certainly this perversity that every time the government does something to bleep our economy and hurt people, then number one, the consequences are always blamed on capitalism and the free market. You see this all the time in, in debating the American healthcare system against the outright socialist, you know, schemes of Canada or the UK or Europe. And people lose sight of the fact that the U.S. system wasn't even close to a free market even before Obamacare took it over. And at this point, it's completely government-dictated, you know, system from soup to nuts. So every time some perverse thing happens, people are paying $800 for insulin. And you think insulin is basically an agricultural product, right? You can modify yeast cells to produce this stuff. It shouldn't really be that much more expensive than alcohol, which would be really cheap if it weren't for taxes anyway. So, you know, people look at this, which is very perverse and obviously very hurtful to people that are insulin dependent. And they say, well, it's capitalism. And when they when they make that misdiagnosis, whether that's an honest mistake or whether that's, you know, shall we say motivated reasoning, then then because capitalism, because freedom, the remaining vestiges of freedom are blamed for this, then obviously the solution is take away more freedom. Have the government fix that by dictating a price of, of insulin. Mm-hmm. Or whatever it is that they're going to propose as their as their solution. So that's that's generally been the trend for the last hundred and something years. The government does something that has a perverse applies a perverse incentive, which causes perverse behaviors, which results in perverse outcomes, which then has to be fixed with more government intervention. And so, as the central planning of money and credit messes up the economy, will there be this groundswell demanding more and more? move towards either communism, which is government ownership of the means of production, or fascism, nominally private mean ownership of the means like hospitals in the U.S. are nominally privately owned, but under government control, which is what Benito Mussolini proposed. Do we move there? That's a very big risk. Of course, that only makes it worse. Those are just steps steps forward towards either the Argentinian model of prosperity or the Venezuelan model of prosperity. And I say that very tongue-in-cheek because neither of those countries got prosperity out of the deal. Is that possible? Yeah. I hope that, on the other hand, as things get worse, that creates an opportunity. And to some degree, this is already borne out with what the Fed has done post-2008 has been mad, even by the, even by the standards of the central planners pre-2008, even on their own stated terms. What they did after 2008 was insane. And that being the case, there's a lot of people now that talk about monetary policy, that talk about inflation, that talk about interest rates, that never been thinking about such things before that. And so if enough people, what, is, what was the saying from Voltaire? It takes a small but irate and tireless minority to affect its change. I'm butchering the quote, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think the future is not foreordained yet. It could be that this is the next increment towards a totalitarian regime. Or it could be that people are like, wait a minute, stop. This is nuts. Let's restore some semblance of freedom and, and therefore reason, you know, the situation. And I hope that voices that are in favor of freedom and free markets become more prominent as we go forward because people are looking for an alternative. Mm-hmm. Because the glib answers of the people who caused the problem telling you that the solution is to give them more power you know, get tiresome and get stale. I, I hope that's the case. Mm-hmm. No guarantee on that on that either. 
Absolutely. And I think it's important to have conversations like this to try to affect a little bit of that change to think about the the problem and then the solutions that have been offered constantly, the path that they've ultimately led us down, right? And to maybe change that thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the real hope at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So Keith, I'd like to go back a little bit to talking a little bit about maybe the second half of the Fed's equation here. When let's say the interest rate trend starts to fall again, or the Fed forces it back down. If we start to see the spreads for junk bonds start to rise, what kind of uh, an environment does that equal? You're saying an environment of falling treasury yields and widening spread between treasuries and junk? Mm -hmm. Well, that's assuming the Fed is going to continue to do what it's been doing since 2008 is an environment for the Fed to you know, give a covert bailout. I mean, who owns those junk bonds? Obviously, banks, insurance companies, pension funds, you know, to give a covert bailout and buy that stuff at par and then tuck it away in a dark corner of their balance sheet and never see the light of day again. So that's back to the stimulus, balance sheet expansion, you know, infinite free money of, you know, the 2009 to whatever period that would be, unless they suddenly get, you know, get discipline say we're not, we're going to let the junks all fail, but something tells me that's not going to be the case. How should we define recession and what factors do you think should go into calculating that? You know, that's a very interesting question. And part of me wants to just sardonically observe that people went from being experts on immunology and virology, leaping straight to being experts on definition of recession. Now, apparently they're experts on the best way to take down a uh, spy balloon. And then tomorrow they'll become experts on the next thing, whatever that's going to be tomorrow. But to me, it seems that it's kind of looking at the downstream effects of something else that happens upstream. So people say, okay, well, if if GDP turns down, now I've written tons of material criticizing that GDP is just a completely Keynesian consumptionist, you know, propaganda tool. And that shouldn't be used to measure the economy anyway, because if you're, you know, to use an analogy that that hopefully people can relate to, suppose you're a farmer on the frontier, you know, in order to have a crop next year, you have to set aside seeds. And, you know, in the case of grain, the seeds are also known as food. So there's stuff you can't eat, even though it's food, because you have to have it next year to plant. And if you don't save it for next year, then you really screw the following winter. And so... I use the analogy, and I think Mises used the analogy, and Ayn Rand used the analogy as well, maybe she got it from Mises, of eating the seed corn. So imagine you had this frontier town, there's a bunch of farmers that have their seed corn, and something somehow perversely stimulates them to break out the seed corn and throw some giant, you know, five-day bacchanal feast and, you know, endless parties and orgies and whatever that they do. It seems like a lot of fun while it's going on, and it's actually labor intensive. You actually have to hire people to break out the seed corn and you have to cook, you know, all this food with it and bake all this bread and do all these wonderful things with it. Slaughter your livestock, which is your breeding stock as well, probably while you're at it. And that's known as a good economy and, and modern Keynesian, you know, monetarist thinking. But I should clarify that remark. The Keynesians. And the Friedmanites, the, the the monetarists, regard themselves as being opposites. I regard them as being flip sides of the same coin. 
and actually not really all that different when you look at, at what they're saying that, that you know the government should do. They're both central planners at heart, and one is a nominally more free market bent, but in name only. So anyway, you have this consumptionist you know, metric that says, okay, while we're busting out the seed corn and while we're slaughtering the breeding livestock, that that's a good economy. And then when it runs out, and then we have hard times afterwards, then that's a recession. And there's a perversity there that people are blaming the effects and loving the cause as one, you know, leads to the other. So I would say you really have to look upstream to that, to, you know, what's going on in credit. If credit is expanding freely, not just slowing, but expanding, then you're going to see all the activities that people associate with healthy economy, which isn't necessarily healthy because that credit isn't sound credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're going to see partying. You're going to see, you know, a surplus of different consumer goods and services, all the stuff that people associate with, you know, let's call it the 2003 to 2006 or 2007 time period and the, you know, 2010 to 2020 time period as good times. And then when when the credit ceases up for whatever reason, usually because the Fed is trying to hike rates as it did in 2000, uh, when did the rates start? 2005, I think technically, or 2006 with some lag, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, and then the bust really occurring in 2008. And so then we call that recession. Yeah, I think recession is coming. Whether you define it as a downtick in GDP, whether you define it as GDP is flat and not growing, whether you define it as two quarters of GDP being down, I'm not so much of a strong opinion about that as to say, okay, but credit is weakening. With that, it's going to come defaults, which is forcible shrinking of balance sheets, either the debtors or the creditors or both. You're going to have cram downs. You're going to have outright liquidations. You're going to have layoffs or layoffs have already started. The laid off people themselves have payments they're going to be defaulting on. They're not going to make their car payments, their home mortgage payments, whatever, credit card payments. And then you get this spiral. And once it kicks into gear, it's very hard to reverse it. So then the Fed slams the interest rate back to zero. But now you have a lag after that, where the Fed slammed the interest rate to zero basically in fall of 08. How long was it before people felt good times had been restored? A couple of years. Mm-hmm arguably 2010, 2011. So I think that however you define it, if we're not already in a recession, to me, it feels like we are. So I'm, I'm here in Las Vegas right now to escape the, the madness of having Phoenix over full of both Super Bowl fans as well as golf fans, because there's a golf open going on right now. And everything feels just really anemic here. You just don't see the crowds, even like on a Saturday night mm-hmm. you know, here in Vegas. It feels like there's already, you know, obviously people who recently laid off are not in Vegas. People who are concerned that they're going to be laid off who still have a job probably aren't coming to Vegas to party either. And what's the size of that latter group? I mean, it's been relatively small layoffs so far, but I think there's a much greater number of people that fear a layoff is coming. Their company isn't doing well or their company has to refinance some debt. And now they, they worry that they won't be able to make it at the new higher interest rates that they're going to be paying. So I think there's a lot of stuff that has been baked into the cake, but hasn't come out of the oven yet. Yeah, it seems when we hear the Fed being so dependent on these strong labor market numbers, that only seems like a matter of time before those numbers actually 
present themselves as being far more negative, considering the amount of layoffs that we've seen from the, you know, the tech sector alone, let's say, and being that this is seemingly a very laggy indicator. Yeah. It seems, you know, obviously misplaced to rest your laurels on that, that that's a good sign from the market right now. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's pretty well understood that employment is a lagging indicator, certainly. At best, concurrent, and certainly not leading. Mm-hmm. And when you look at why, you know, over the past, what has it been now, going on 15 years since 2008? Well, 2008, they did layoffs, and I guess everybody who did layoffs would say rightfully so. But then post-2009, 2010, every time there's been the Fed either threatening a little hike or some sort of mini little blip, the spreads between junk and treasuries, widening, whatever it is, some companies started to do layoffs to try to get ahead of it. Because if there's going to be a downturn, he who lays off first lays off best. Mm-hmm. Get Do one layoff, get that done, be able to say to all the rest of the employees, look, yes, it sucks we had to do this, but the good news is if you're still here, you're safe, and now we're, we're leaner and meaner. And, and what you don't want is to dribble out an endless series of small layoffs, which just crushes morale and you know, does a lot of bad stuff. So companies have learned, and there's been a lot of little Fed blips along the way. You know, anybody who did layoffs regretted it. And six months later was trying to go back to the people they just laid off and offering them bonuses and, and raises to come back on. Mm-hmm. I think companies try to hold on as long as they can because they've been trained like the boy who cried wolf too many times. They've been trained not to. But I think this one is different because the Fed has really pushed rates up in a way that it hasn't since you know, the lead up to the last crisis. And so, you know, if you look at venture back startups, right, as one space, they've all been told, you know, get to cash flow positive as quick as you can, lay off as many unnecessary people as you have, whatever. So they're all doing layoffs. But as long as the venture market essentially remains closed, they're all burning up their remaining runway. And one by one, depending on how much, again, where they were in the cycle when the music stopped, were they in front of how long do they have left in their chair before their chair times out and they have to go back and get more? If they can't, a lot of those companies are going to close entirely. So they might have done a layoff of 10 or 15% of their workforce, but if they can't get more capital, the other 85 to 90% is coming. And I think for a lot of them, that's already baked in the cake. It's too late to have too little runway left and they're just dead. You know, they're just, they're just walking dead. So, yeah, I think a lot more pain is coming to, to labor and you can point to the strong labor market right now all you want, but you're, um, you know, you're, you're just whistling Dixie, I think. Mm-hmm. Does this environment or does the environment of zero interest rates also drive investors into possibly riskier asset classes just to be able to find some yield on their cash, Keith? Yeah, and that's that's one of the perversities of it is deprived of it you know everybody there's a there's a universal human need to get a yield which is really the founding principle of monetary metals that's the universal human need this is i guess and and i was going to say right up there with food and water but if you look at maslow right there's a need for oxygen and if you're not getting oxygen nothing else matters Mm -hmm. once you have oxygen then the next thing is probably a temperature within a certain relatively narrow band if you're freezing to death or broiling alive nothing else matters Okay, once you have that, then there's a need for water. If you're not getting water, nothing else matters. After that is food, after that is shelter, and so on down the line. But on on that list is a need for a return on capital, 
we're all mortal. And mortality doesn't mean that you live, you know, in a 30-year-old's level of health until one day you abruptly drop dead. It means a gradual decline into senescence. And so you have to plan for that during your working years by saving more than, you know, by, by producing more than you consume, saving the difference, getting a return on that, and then in retirement, living off of hopefully the interest on your savings. When they deprive you of any means of getting a yield, when they drive the interest rate to zero, then all, all yields on all things, whether it's the cap rate on real estate, whether it's the dividend you know, yield of a stock, whether it's bank you know, CD or time deposit, you know, they, all, they all follow suit. They all go to zero. So people turn to the surrogate, and the surrogate is speculation. They buy something, not because it's necessarily a sound investment, not because it's necessarily producing anything at all. This is the phenomenon of, of Bitcoin in a nutshell. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't finance anything. However, it's going up. Number go up, TM. So you buy whatever's going up. And if that happens to be a company that is not a sound company, you're essentially giving you know, a, a broken movie theater chain. You're giving a dying game retailer you know, in a world where everything is moving online to Steam and these kinds of platforms. You're giving a company that has no rational economic and no prospects of ever developing one. You're feeding them tons and tons of capital. Wasn't it that movie theater chain that bought a share in, was it Iron Gold? I don't remember which gold mining company they bought shares in. Right. This was last year. It's like, mm-hmm. you just fed them so much money that after bonus, I'm sure the directors and officers got bonuses and whatever. And after, after all that, it's like, what are we going to do? Well, shove it into, okay, gold, that looks good. Yeah, let's buy some gold miners. Mm-hmm. And those guys know anything with gold mining business on, you know, who knows? So yeah, investors turn to all these things. And it's it's not just that it's risky. There are certain things that are certain to lead to losses, and Bitcoin being one of them, and enterprises that are literally wealth consuming, capital destroying enterprises, and you're feeding them your capital. So what are they gonna do with it? They're gonna continue to operate a broken movie theater chain, continue to operate a broken business model for retailing games that people don't buy at retail anymore. And they're going to just burn your capital until they run out of it. And then when they run out of it, they're right back in the same um, same boat they're in before. And so, yeah, there's risks that are created, but also just outright, you know, money burning exercise, just light your money on fire. Mm-hmm. And, and all those things happen. And that's called good economy. And then when you run out of that money, it's called recession. And, you know, it's a binge and purge you know, which is the healthy phase mm-hmm. Well, I don't think either of them are healthy. So Keith, as we're thinking about the ideas of really cause and effect here, does the scarcity or availability of the metals change as the price moves and how quickly is it to respond? So if we're talking about the monetary metals, gold and silver, virtually all the gold ever mined in human history is still in human hands, much less so for silver. Silver is too cheap to bother recycling, if you throw out an old radio, there's some silver in the solder and the contacts in the circuit board, but probably not enough in most cases to be worth sending that radio to a specialty shop to disassemble it and recycle the silver out of it. So, you know, a lot of silver has been lost over the centuries, but not so much the gold. So all that metal is out there and even silver, vast, vast, vast amounts of that silver is in, is in private hands. When the price goes down, that metal becomes less abundant to the market, generally. And when the price goes up, 
more people bring it to market because they see a deal. And I think the simplest example of that is the cash for gold places. Those were all the rage after 2009 because the price of gold was making, even in the lead up to the crisis, you know, those places started to open up, but they really boomed in 2009, you know, and beyond because every time the price of gold ticked up, everybody that's sitting there with, with an old bracelet that they don't, they don't want anymore is just thinking, man, I could get some cash for this. And then on the nightly news, the price of gold made a record high today. And then they're like, oh, you know, I should, I should go sell that and I can go buy whatever I want to buy with it. Mm-hmm. And that rising price is pulling more of that stuff out of the market. And then when the price turned around, and after 2000, August of 2011, the gold, price of gold hit its peak. After 2012, that reversed. And all those cash for gold places closed their doors. And all the strip malls that had rented to them regretted it. And you know, didn't, you know, they started setting rules, we're not going to lease to a cash for gold place anymore. Mm-hmm. Which is like locking the barn door after the after the horse gets out, I suppose. So you know, the higher price definitely attracts sellers. Of course, gold is a very funny thing in that, and, and silver too. In that, you get buying because of of greed, but you also get buying because of fear. And so, a higher price can actually attract more buyers. And in the at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen, which is going to be an enormously destructive dynamic. That I talk about in my permanent gold backwardation thesis. But in the meantime, when, when things are trading normally, the higher price tends to pull more gold into the market. The lower price tends to not pull the gold into the market and pulls demand in. There's a lot of people that are bargain hunters. And it isn't just the Asians. You see people in, in, in North America all the time that are like, oh, well, if gold hits 1800, I'm going to back up the truck. Mm-hmm. See those comments on Twitter all day long, right? But if gold hits 2100, I'm going to lighten my position. I'm going to sell a little bit, take some profits. So absolutely, you see that that dynamic in playing out every day. And and it responds really quickly. Right? Everybody's got a screen. Everybody's got, you know, if they care about the gold price, it's on their smartphone. They've got alerts. They've got it on their, you know, lock screen page or whatever it is. Everybody knows what the gold price is all day long. Mm-hmm. We're in a almost over-information world. Like too many screens in too many places. You know, you can't sit down... I was in a restaurant yesterday and, you know, of course. But Keith, to be fair, Vegas is probably a bad example of this. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, but yeah, the Super Bowl was everywhere. But I was going to say when the Super Bowl wasn't on, there's one or two places where it's like a Bloomberg or a CNBC. Oh, that's what it was. I went to the gym and so I was captive to the screen there. And there's price tickers and Asian market was open. And, you know, and like there's the price of gold and there's what happened to the Treasury bond futures. And like we're just inundated we're just like, you, you know, it's like a fire hose of all this, of all this data just spewing at us 24 by, if not 24 by seven, 24 by five, at least. Mm-hmm. And for the Bitcoiners, markets open on the weekend too, so 24 by seven. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's necessarily healthy. I, I think people should pull away from that. But anyways, I, I think people do get those price quotes. I think they do respond quickly and supply and demand conditions change. We can see it in our graphs. Mm-hmm. You get a big price move. And then, you know, the basis moves right along with that price you know, in real time or very close to real time. So, Keith, when you're analyzing the gold price, how do you go about backing out the effects of speculators? And what is the purpose of doing that? So the theory is that in gold, there's a cash market and there's a futures market. I don't go so far as to say that, oh, that's paper gold. 
and it's a fraud that's designed to shunt demand away. When you buy a future, then the market maker who sells you that future is buying physical gold. If not necessarily right now, he may be buying forward from a mine, but he's buying gold so that he has it to deliver to you. He's not taking a speculative bet on the direction of gold. He's carrying gold to pocket a small spread. And so normally, there's a spread between spot and future, which is called the basis. And the basis is comparable to an interest rate, right? So you buy spot, you sell it forward. You should get around something like LIBOR out of that trade. But in the futures market, that's where the speculators go because it's easy and cheap to do so. And you get huge amounts of leverage, you know, 10 to 1 or more leverage easily. Whereas if you're a retail trader and you're using GLD, you might get 2 to 1 you know, leverage for your trade. But in futures, get much bigger leverage. So the speculators with that leverage can move the price quite a bit, at least temporarily. And then ultimately, the, the theory is they have to close their position because they're paying for that leverage. And they're taking a big risk because the bigger the leverage, the smaller the price move will destroy your entire capital base. And so if you're 10 to 1 leverage, only a 10% price move against you, and you're wiped out. So they tend to set very you know, tight stops and other, other things that they do. So if the speculators are bullish and they put on a lot of long positions, then they're going to push the price of gold or silver up. And if they're bearish, and let's face it, certainly in the conventional, you know, let's call it managed futures accounts, you know, world of you know commodity pool advisor, you know, commodity trading advisor types and hedge funds, they're equally happy to take a long or short position. They don't have a permanent bullish bias the way most of the people in our community probably would. So there's times when their bullishness is pushing the price up, and that could be quite a bit, at least for a short period of time, and times when their bearishness is pushing the price down. But they're using leverage and they're distorting the spread between spot and future. So that spot and future spread ought to be here. And sometimes they're pushing this up and sometimes they're pushing it down. It can even invert. And so we built a model to try to, you know, say, okay, well, where, where would this spread be if, if everything was sort of neutral? If metal were just trading at the price where the metal would clear without any impact by the futures market, we built this model. We call it the monetary metals fundamental price. It's not, you know, with any model, you've got to be clear not to overhype it, that it's guaranteed or any of these kinds of things. It's just a model. And sometimes market conditions can change. Sometimes the speculators are right and they're anticipating something that's going to happen. And if they're right, it actually does happen. Supply and demand actually catches up at the new, at the new higher price. And you would have said, well, speculators have pushed the price up and the price is going to come back down because they're all going to be forced out. Not always. Sometimes they're actually right. Usually, however, the speculators front run themselves. They get themselves into a tizzy and then, you know, a week later or whatever, you know, things are back. So that's what our model does. And it's definitely worth, it definitely should inform everybody who's thinking of putting on a trade anyways. Mm -hmm. Publish it for free. It's there on the website. You know, it's a tool like anything else. And you know, we put a lot of work into designing it and, and making sure that the, the data hygiene was good and the data was clean. Which is the main thing on building. You know, if the, if the data is noisy, your model can be great, but it's it's worthless. Right, Keith. In the report, you write that the price of energy could explode ten or a hundred times higher, which would drive up everything from food to utility bills to transportation. It would not, however, affect the price of gold and silver. So, I want to ask you about that. Isn't the biggest cost of mining 
gold and silver, the energy that it takes to get the metals from ore to refined form? I, I agree with exactly half of that. Yes, it is absolutely true that mining is very energy intensive. Although, you know, if you look at different mines, some of them much more so than others. Some of them are dealing with, you know, alluvial deposits that are relatively easy to just scoop it up. And others are busting, you know, have to go down and drill into hard rock and bust it up. But yes, it absolutely is energy intensive business. But the miners are a very small percentage of supply to the market. What do I mean by that? Any normal commodity supply is whatever comes out of the mines copper or whatever comes off the farms, wheat, you know, or oil. These are not commodities that are monetary commodities. Whatever is produced is produced to be consumed. If they produce a little too much and you get a, a big buffer of inventory, that's called a glut. Then the price crashes, which is a disincentive to produce any more, an incentive to consume more until the glut is worked off and the price eventually restores. But in the case of monetary metal, Virtually all of the gold mined in, so far as we know, 5,000 years, a friend of mine wrote a book called The Dawn of Gold, in which he argues with some reasoning and had a number of discussions with anthropologists, Neanderthals were picking gold nuggets out of the stream beds in Europe 13,000 years ago, he argues. So, but at least 5,000 years that we know of, people have been pulling the stuff up and valuing it and hoarding it. Virtually all of that is still in somebody's hands. So all of that gold is potential supply under the right conditions and at the right price. So if, if India has a bad, you know, monsoon year and they have poor crop yields, there's a lot of gold that comes to market because for the people there, the gold is their savings. And if they, you know, if their harvest is insufficient to meet their, their needs to feed their family, they will sell some gold and, and to buy food. They have no choice. So all of that gold is potential supply. Compared to that, the supply that comes out of the mines is a drop in the bucket. And so even if all the mines were to turn off tomorrow, I don't think that really has a great effect on the price of gold. Over the longer term, yes, that would tend to be a little bit of an upward bias, but I wouldn't overstate the magnitude of that force. Without, let's say, the addition of speculation within that market, right? Because if the miners shutting off would drive the behavior of speculators that would seemingly have the effect that we're talking about, about raising the price because of, you know, what that ultimately means, right? Oh, right. So if all the miners are forced to go out of business, then speculators bid up the price of gold. Yeah, you could get that. But then, you know, that force, that upward force on the price from the turning off of the marginal supply of the mines, take a long time to make any real meaningful difference to the price of gold, the speculators all bid it up and you get some giant spike high of whatever. Mm -hmm. I'll just name some crazy number, $3,000 an ounce, let's say. And then the speculators are all standing there. This is the problem with Bitcoin too, for that matter. Everyone's all standing like, okay, now that we've paid up to 3000 now what? And of course, he who, it's game theory, right? He who defects first, you know, the prisoner's dilemma, he who defects first defects best. Mm -hmm. And so then the selling begins and you know, it goes right back down to where supply and demand truly balance, and you know, right back at two thousand or nineteen hundred or whatever it is. So I, I don't think that you know you can reverse cause and effect and say that because energy went up, and and especially if energy is going up due to green energy restrictions, that's that's a big theme of mine, and of, of course, war, you know, doing it as well. These are non-monetary forces. Gold doesn't have to respond to non-monetary forces, typically doesn't. 
And then I also rather suspect that a lot of mines, if they're going to be in places like Africa, will have sources of energy that even if Europe can't get natural gas, it doesn't mean that they can't get some sort of coal or something in Africa where they don't necessarily care about environmental regulations too much anyways. And, you know, in order to operate and feed the the plant. Mm -hmm. Excellent, Keith. So to kind of summarize, what forces are you expecting to really drive the price of gold over the next coming year? So I think consumer prices, to tackle that for a moment, I think all the forces that have been driving it post-COVID are largely still in play, except for Lockdown and whiplash, I think, have kind of played their course. I don't see further prices rising due to further disruptions to supply chain and things like that. However, that set in motion, or maybe at least precipitated something that was already in the mix, which is trade war and, and tariffs. And there's a huge reshoring movement. So if American companies had moved to China because it's cheaper there and now forced to come back onshore, then obviously prices are going to have to go up. So that, I think, is a durable trend. Green energy restrictions, we'll see. On the one hand, ideologically, that trend is intact. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of seriously pissed off people, especially in Europe, but also in New New England, that, you know, energy suddenly really hit them hard. And they may be looking at, why did we block that pipeline again? There's all this plentiful natural gas and oil down there, but we couldn't get it up here. And so we're paying through the nose for this. But anyways, that's consumer prices. In terms of the monetary metals, I think that from a monetary perspective, well, number one, the price of gold doesn't really correlate or inversely correlate with interest rates. There's times of rising interest rates and rising gold price. There's times of falling and falling, but they can also cross up and go opposite. But at the moment, you have the Fed pushing the interest rate up above people's time preference. I think quite a bit above time preference at the moment, which means that Savers actually aren't desperately starved for yield at the moment. Just buy T-bill. You can get well over 4% on treasurydirect.com, which is operated by the U.S. government, and you can park whatever spare savings you have there, and it's a pretty good deal. So I think that takes some of the pressure off of gold. I mean, if, if the interest rate's zero, the opportunity cost of owning gold, which aside from monetary metals clients who do get a yield on their gold, I do have to put that plug in there. But, you know, normally or conventionally, gold doesn't have a yield. And so if if the dollar doesn't have a yield, then what's the opportunity cost of owning gold, which doesn't have a yield either? But if the dollar is paying 4.5%, there are going to be people who do that. But for every person who does that, there's another person who's saying, wait a minute, but the dollar is just the government's debt. And look at the government's debt skyrocketing. They're either ideological, I don't want to be an enabler feeding the government all this credit, or in more pragmatic terms, I don't want to be the sucker who's giving these, you know, liars and, and knaves my money to go spend and call it borrowing. There's no way they can, you know, ever hope to repay it. So there's very robust buying of gold, no question about it. Mm-hmm. Even against all the conventional drivers to, to not buy it. And then, as I said, I think when when the Fed reverses, I think there'll be a huge, you know, surge there. Not just the speculators. The other thing that needs to be emphasized is that every time one of these little crises erupts, especially a crisis that the conventional thinking couldn't foresee because it doesn't understand the system that it purports to plan, every time one of these crises erupts, 
you get a whole fresh wave of people that for the first time are looking around and saying, wait a minute, this is, this is madness. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people came to gold for the first time after 2008. And I think a lot of people came to gold after 2020 and the, and the stimulus for, for COVID. Well, in this next thing, now the Fed thinks they're hearing inflation. Most people believe that theory. When the Fed reverses, there's going to be a lot of people saying, weren't you supposed to be fixing inflation? And now you're abandoning that because you're fixing your crony bank friends. And so a lot of people will then turn to gold as, as first-time buyers. So I think, personally, I think that the the bear market in gold, if you will, that occurred after the price peaked in August of 2011, that arguably went through about 2019, I think that bear market is over and that we're in a generally rising price trend with you know plenty of zigs and zags along the way. But I think we're in a generally bullish trend now. And I expect that will continue and, and the Fed can enhance and accelerate that either by continuing to cause crisis or by attempting to fix the crisis the only way they know how to, which is more stimulus and more bailouts and more bullshit. I think more people come to gold. You, you can see the change in attitude. Mm-hmm. It's very palpable from the, I guess we call them the normies, right? The muggles, the people that just don't think of gold as money. They don't think the dollar is credit, but you know, bit by bit, their their attitudes are changing. Their 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 minds are turning inevitably, right? Because the whole dollar system is failing, mm-hmm. and every day it gets closer to that. As more people are getting closer to realizing that gold is is real, so I think I think the trend for consumer prices is probably upwards. People will call it. You know, Milton Friedman said inflation is always and everywhere monetary. And so people will assume it's monetary, but for largely non-monetary reasons, consumer price is rising. But I think for other for monetary reasons, the gold price rising is kind of what I what I see going going forward. And silver correlating more to gold than anything else, but subject more to the plight of of labor mm-hmm. that has that dimension to it that gold doesn't really have. The accessibility for the average working man. Right, but I mean, just that the price of silver is going to depend on whether the working man is flush or whether he's laid off. Mm-hmm. That, you know, employment isn't really going to affect gold, right? but much more so silver. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Keith. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up today's conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we do? You know, I guess I would just make an impassioned plea for everybody to learn about our monetary system and not just you know, it's tempting to just look at the practical considerations of, okay, where where do I invest my money to make, to make a return, which is, of course, important and necessary, but also to look deeper to understand the roots of it, that inflation becomes an antiseptic statistic. Mm-hmm. Joseph Stalin said, if you kill one person, that's a tragedy. If you kill a million people, it's a statistic. Mm-hmm. But what the government is doing turns into a statistic. We call it the consumer price index. And I say, you got to break it down and look at what the government is doing is counterfeiting. Inflation is the fraudulent issuance of counterfeit credit because they have no means nor intent to ever repay it. And when people understand that as a counterfeiting operation, then they see it's unjust. With un- when perceiving it unjust, they become angry. If enough people become angry at it, there'll be a change. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, the history of America is the history of fixing things that were unjust, slavery, prohibition, now, marijuana prohibition looks like it's going down the same road. 
um, Jim Crow. You know, these were unjust institutions that everybody at the time said it'll endure. Yeah, maybe it sucks, but it'll endure forever because there's entrenched interests, et cetera, et cetera. But when enough people got seriously pissed off about it, then it fell, these institutions fell. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is true, will be true for uh, irredeemable, you know, currency and, and the central banks that manage it. So if, if everybody puts in that work to understand it, read about this, look at how this actually works, then I think there'll be a groundswell movement. And I think the world sorely needs that. It is long overdue for that reformation or that revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for contributing a little bit to hopefully educating and helping some people understand that a little bit today, Keith. My pleasure. Of course, your Twitter is at Real Keith Wiener. And of course, the monetary metals outlook for the year for the metals, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it's also available at monetary-metals.com, right? Absolutely. Wonderful, Keith. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.